Welcome to Conversations for the Animals. I am Lisa Tynan with Houston Pet Set, and I am joined today by one of my personal heroes, Trish McMillan, and she's going to laugh and blush. But we are, we're going to talk today about some behavior, which is, of course, my favorite thing to talk about. Um, but we're going to talk about it in regards to sheltering and animal welfare specifically, um, because you are an expert. And we joked about it. You, I, I think of you as an actual true expert in the field of behavior. But you're also a little bit of a celebrity uh, touring around the world, really, and and working with shelters and volunteers and staff. And uh, talk a little bit about what you do. Yeah, yeah. I run Shelter Behavior Hub, which is an online school for shelter behavior people. So I have a bunch of courses, I have mentorships, I have one-off courses, lots of stuff to do there. And I also get hired to do shelter consulting and to speak at conferences and do seminars all over the world, which is really cool between my students being from all over the world and, and getting to travel. It has been a real privilege to get to see how sheltering works in many, many, many places. And boy, is it different. <laughs> it is different everywhere. Yeah. That, so that was kind of where I wanted to start the conversation, because here in Houston, we have been we Houston Petset, but also all of our partners have really been trying to sound the alarm about the homeless animal crisis that we're facing here. I mean, we're the fourth largest city in the U.S. We're the largest city in Texas. And we uh, pay, I think, per capita, we spend half of what the next biggest city in Texas spends on animal control. So it's hard for us to kind of get out of our little universe and see what the world looks like in other places. And are we that much worse than anywhere else? I mean, is everybody struggling to, to place animals like we are? Yeah, I think right now we are having a real crisis in animal welfare. The, the shelters are overflowing in many, many places around the world. But in North America, it's particularly bad. And a lot of folks are blaming it on the pandemic and we ceased spay neuter and we're certainly seeing more litters of puppies and kittens here in North Carolina where I live. But I have a hunch that a big part of it is the housing crisis with the rents going up so high. If you have 200 people applying for your apartment, the landlord's going to pick the person without the pets. Yeah. And Unfortunately, if if you have multiple pets like me, I, I have spent a long time before the high housing crisis looking for rentals that will take two or three dogs. Mm -hmm. And now it's almost impossible. So people are given the choice between you can be homeless or you can give up your pets. And anytime I get a chance to I like to brag about my home province's law called Fluffy's Law which in the province of Ontario, landlords cannot discriminate against people with pets any more than you can discriminate against people with kids, which used to be a thing also. Right. And if your pet's eating the place or barking nonstop, you can certainly evict people for having a disruptive pet. But it was a, a little cat named Fluffy that got this started a really long time ago. It's been, it's been in Ontario for a long time. And wow. I think... I would love to see one of the big animal organizations take on housing right. renters with pets as a cause, because I, I think if Fluffy's Law was nationwide, the shelters would be empty tomorrow. Like it, it's, it would be that easy. It does feel like that. And, and on the other side, I mean, 
when people do have housing, but they're getting evicted because they have pets. Um, We, you know, in my however many years in sheltering, I can't tell you the number of people who showed up as the doors were closing at the end of the night saying, I have nowhere to go. I'm getting evicted tomorrow. I have to get rid of my pet. And so it's they can't get in the apartment or they're getting kicked out of the apartment because they don't have the right type of dog or the dog is being disruptive. So I, I tend to agree there. And and it also speaks to the housing crisis speaks to the income disparities in a lot of the cities. Houston, I think they just recently came out and said, has some of the worst levels of poverty of any major city. Um, But we also have some incredible wealth here. And those parts of town are not seeing a stray animal crisis, whereas the parts of town where they're underserved, under-resourced, that's where the strays are. And they have other priorities. It's becoming a real privilege to have a pet. And I think, you know, everybody should be able to have the joy of sharing their lives with an animal. There are so many animals that need homes. There are so many people who want these animals. And with the income inequality gap just getting wider and wider, it is becoming only the wealthy who can have animals. Mm -hmm. And the number of poorer people is getting larger because housing is getting so crazy. Rent and house prices are just off the charts right now. So yeah. I don't know. Something's got to give, but Fluffy's Law would fix it. So somebody please take that on. <laughs> well, we interestingly enough, we have our uh, mayoral election coming up uh, this, what, what month is it? Starting actually this month, early voting. And we just had a forum uh, a week and a half ago or so um, talking about animal welfare specifically with the mayoral candidates. And it sort of feels like it could start locally with Houston making ordinances regarding people being able to have pets. So if our, any of our candidates are listening... Put that well, on the I've platform. stayed in an apartment building in Vancouver, which is where I got my start in animal welfare in the mid-90s. And I had three dogs. And this landlord said, I only accept people with pets. And it was the coolest building because wow. you knew you had something in common with everybody you got on the elevator with. And he said, what I've found renting to people with pets, especially people with dogs, is if you are... Um, responsible enough to walk a dog every day and feed them and get them to the vet and you're you're probably also responsible enough to hold down a job you're probably responsible enough to pay your rent on time and the other thing he found was that people stayed so much longer because partly because all the other landlords in vancouver didn't allow pets but it was a really cool fun apartment building people had been there for years for decades and I, I wish more landlords would give people with pets a try. Yeah. Uh, and it, it brings a question. You know, one of the challenges that we face is that so many of the animals, the dogs specifically that are currently available for adoption are bully type dogs or they are large breed and they tend to fall under those restricted breeds that landlords have. Um, and this sort of like a two part conversation. We can talk about the fact that that is an absolutely asinine rule to have in place. Um, but also, why are there so many bully type breeds that are are available for adoption? I mean, obviously, people buy purebred dogs and we can't ignore that fact. But so many of the dogs in our shelters, people can't adopt them because their landlord doesn't allow whatever type of dog they want. Yeah, it's kind of a chicken and egg situation. And don't speak too loudly because my pit bull can hear us. Theo, <laughs> don't listen. Don't be listening. There are people who discriminate against you. It's terrible. Like, 
I, I agree that if your dog is disruptive, if your dog is aggressive, like if we put restrictions on dogs by behavior rather than by how they look, like mm-hmm. it, it's just an absurd thing. Um, I don't know that there's that many more, but I I bet that it's just harder to find a place to live with with a bully breed. Mm-hmm. But um, I wish there was a way to give more of them a chance because there are there are some lovely lovely pit bull type dogs out there, including mine, who is the best. He is the best, and and so many of the places here. And I, for the longest time, didn't have a dog. But now I have a seven pound Chihuahua Minpin, so nobody cares about her. But a lot of the places I was applying, the list of dogs was yeah. outrageous. It wasn't just pit bulls. It was also some of them didn't allow German Shepherds, Rottweilers, Akitas, which like three people have Akitas. They're not a common breed. Um, but I, I'm so curious as to who is in the ear of these not just individual landlords, but also the big companies, big apartment complex companies. Where are they getting this from? And it's. I'm I'm wondering if this is something old that has just been on the books forever or I think, I think some of it is insurance. I think there there are absolutely insurance companies that discriminate against dogs for their breed. And again, I wish if you're going to pick on people, if you're going to raise insurance for certain things, do it by behavior, mm-hmm. not not by breed. I have also the sweetest Doberman in the world listening in on this call. <laughs> She's the um, busiest and sweetest. She's very, very, very busy, but she is absolutely no danger to anyone except right. maybe she might jump up and kiss you in the face. Right. Or but, headbutt. Or headbutt. Maybe. Yeah. That's that she is she does have a pointy head. But um I think it's I don't think you can go to every single um apartment company in every single city in the entire country and say, hey, why don't you do that? Although there, we, here in Asheville, we did have somebody go around to some of the bigger developments and ask them to consider letting pets in, to consider loosening their breed restrictions. But that's a lot of work. One person going around to every place in town. Yeah. I, I think it needs to be done at a higher level. Like people used to be discriminated against because they had kids and, mm-hmm. and you can't do that anymore. And that had to be, you know, kids draw on the walls, kids plug up the toilet. Like, yeah, fine. Yeah. But people have kids and they should not be discriminated against it. And I think the same goes for pets. Like, sure, if your dog has eaten the wall, that is reason for eviction. But if it was on a more legislative level, I Mm -hmm. think it would be more effective. At least it has been in Ontario. And as far as the breed stuff, I I would love to see it removed from insurance as well Mm -hmm. so that insurance companies can't discriminate by breed, like discriminate by behavior. If your dog is lunging and snarling and has a history, sure. (laughs) Drop that person, but don't drop me because I have a pit bull and a Doberman. Like that's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And you, you actually are steering us into the other topic that I wanted to talk about, which is the the I don't know if it's the prevalence, but the problem behavior and the fact that we're seeing so many, I think the word you used was marginal dogs. Uh, we I don't want to exclude cats from the conversation, but we don't seem to see the same problem. People forgive a lot of behavior from cats unless it's like litter box issues. But with dogs, we're seeing so many hard to place, behaviorally marginal pets 
in shelters right now. And I'm curious as to your take on why we are seeing that and what we can maybe do about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with cats, you've got a lot of options. If you have a cat who does not like people, does not want to be touched. I mean, I have barn cats. I mm. have a farm. Like, there are places where a less social cat, my, my barn cats are overly social, but... Um, <laughs> But there are places for cats to go if they're if they are not suited to be pets. Whereas dogs, there's no feral dog pack that you can just set your set your marginal dog free in. And I, I think it's kind of a double-edged problem. I think part of the problem is the there's less selection for behavior in the dogs that we are seeing in shelters. They might be sort of an oops litter or random bread or I got a dog, you got a dog, let's make $200 a puppy. Um, So I think there's not as much selection as I would like to see. I would say if you look at Belyaev's fox experiment Mm -hmm. where they bred the friendliest, just wild fur foxes that were on a farm, they bred the friendliest to the friendliest. And it did not take that many generations before you're seeing foxes that are at the front of the cage and wagging their tails. And if we did the same thing with dogs and bred for sociability, I'd be out of a job in five generations. Yeah. Like there's nothing for me to do. So I think there's that. There's pressure from um, like when I was a kid in Manitoba there was the occasional bitey dog in the neighborhood and we kids all knew where they were and we wouldn't bite by that place or, or the owner would put up a big fence or put a chain on the dog or they would take it out back and shoot it. Like there was just very little tolerance Mm -hmm. for aggression in dogs. And I think like some great things have happened with the no kill movement. We are giving a lot more dogs a chance and a lot of it used to be if a dog looked at you sideways Mm -hmm. in a shelter, they would be on the euthanasia list and we are giving a lot more dogs a chance, but I think in some ways the pendulum has swung too far and I am seeing dogs in shelters for weeks, months, years. I've seen dogs for more than a decade in a shelter who are just not ever going to find a home. And that dog who is in there screaming at all of the visitors who walk by and all the dogs who walk by is kind of making the dogs to the left of her and dogs to the right of her a little less adoptable, as well as having not a great quality of life while the shelter is waiting for a dog trainer with no other dogs, no other animals, no visitors, (laughs) 10-foot fence, no um, Amazon Prime. Like They're waiting for these unicorn homes. And as a dog trainer who has no kids, who lives on a farm um, and does have Amazon Prime, (laughs) I am not going to take your dog with a multiple level four bite history to yeah. and people like that that is not the sort of project that i want to take on and i would i would argue that keeping these dogs sheltered is not kind to the dogs it is not kind to the dogs housed next to them and i have seen people leave shelters in tears after every dog in the shelter has hit the kennel at face level trying to bite their kid through the bars yeah. and I mean, I I wrote my article, The Perils of Placing Marginal Dogs, in 2003 because I I started off a a very, very hardcore no-kill advocate. I was like, there is a lid for every pot, there is a home for every dog, and I was very adamant that the shelter I was volunteering at 
should place everything. Mm. And I worked really hard to find those homes. And I will tell you now that there are animals who are dead because of the decisions I made. There are people who had to go to the emergency room because of decisions that I made. And a good percentage of the dogs that I adopted out during my save them all phase who were just not pets. Yeah. Ended up dead anyways, but it was my, and because I was younger and a lot of my friends didn't have pets, a number of the people who I traumatized with these really marginal to uh, dangerous dogs, um, it, it was people that I knew personally. So I got long-term follow-up for years yeah. about this dog that you sent me that I've spent thousands on. Here's my scars. Here's my neighbor's pets who are dead. And I, I call it outsourcing euthanasia. Mm-hmm. And I, I see this way too often with shelters where like fine if the dog has cancer put them in a hospice foster keep them comfortable and um, let them go when it's time but if it's behavior the thing that I realized after I did this several times was the friends that I traumatized in this way not only were they way less likely to go to a shelter to get their next dog but Everybody who'd heard those stories, one of them, Rosie, the one that I wrote about in the article, they had for four years. And both of my friends worked in the film business in Vancouver, and they saw hundreds, if not thousands, of people over this over these years. And I wonder how many of them saw the scars from breaking up a fight, saw the heard the tales of, I can't go on vacation, who's going to look after mm-hmm. this dog? Oh, she killed another one of the neighbor's cats last night. And how many people heard those stories and thought, that dog's from the Vancouver pound. Like, don't go to the Vancouver pound. When I think about Theodore, who is a dog from a legitimate dog fighting bus, he is the nicest pit bull in the world. He kisses babies. He cleans baby kittens. He lets chickens walk on him. He has never met a person he didn't love, despite coming from a terrible situation. And he has changed a lot of minds in the other world way he has been with me for nine years he is like a decade-long walking advertisement for dogs from dog fighting cases not that they're all like him but enough of them are like there are so many nice dogs that we used to euthanize just because they came from a dog fighting bus he's going to be dog aggressive and ever since the Vic case more and more places are assessing these animals as individuals and he's a dud as far as the dog fighter went he would not have (laughs) seen his second birthday because you not make this dog fight but he was assessed he was my favorite dog on that bust and he came home with me and if we send out good dogs if we send out friendly social dogs i have asked on his page he has a page pibbling with theodore if you want to follow his antics he must it's phenomenal the end of his life now he's got cancer he's he's an old man but um I, I have asked on his page, and there are lots of people there who, like, I never would have thought of adopting a pit bull until they saw Theodore, and I went to the shelter specifically looking for a dog like him. So he's the opposite. Right. So, um, I, I think the pendulum has swung a little too far in terms of, not all shelters, but there are definitely places that are waiting for these unicorn homes that are keeping dogs in cages for yeah. years, and it's... It, it's not fair to the dog. So, you know, behavioral euthanasia is not a topic a lot of people want to talk about. I have been outspoken about it. Yes. I've gotten plenty of hate mail for it. 
um, I have a tough shell. You will be deleted and blocked. I just... <laughs> And it's one of those things I don't think you can understand until you've been through it. If you mm -hmm. went back to 1996, Trish, and said, you're going to be out there crusading for behavioral euthanasia in 2023, I wouldn't have believed it. I, I was very much like, we will find a home for yeah. everybody. It's sometimes hard. So many of the conversations that I've had um, with people in this industry is there's this sense of if they just get a chance, if we just find the right chance, but there's not really the practical part, the planning, the what happens after we save them from the euthanasia list. So there's this big rush. I personally, and this is this is Lisa opinion, I'm not a fan of the red lists, of the code red lists, of the emergency euthanasia lists, because it uses guilt and it uses fear rather than rational thought to try and place an animal. So we have our individual rescuers and rescues jumping at the chance to pull these animals from the, the euthanasia list without, number one, stopping to ask why they might be on it. Mm. And number two, stopping to say, OK, once we get them off the list. And now we, what? Now what? Maybe we get them in a foster. Maybe. And maybe that foster ends up with that animal for years, which is not what they wanted when they signed up for it. Um, maybe we get it into if you have, you know, boarding. We have so many groups who use boarding facilities here as a long-term sheltering option with no real outcome lined up for the animals. And and like you said at the beginning, that's not really a life for a dog or a cat. And as, as the tragedy to you in Texas, which is one of the worst states for euthanasia for space, and me in North Carolina, which is number three, yay. Um, our shelters are overflowing with mm -hmm. super 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 nice dogs yeah. and we don't have as many people fighting over the dogs on the euthanasia list as some of the bigger cities i'm in rural north carolina where there is still not a lot of tolerance for dog aggression mm -hmm. and um, i think that's why we have so many nice dogs but um when i was in new york city i certainly saw groups fighting over you know dog with a bite history to a child and he's going to be euthanized tomorrow and they're arguing and they're getting pledges for hundreds of dollars to pull this dog with no plan while at the same shelter i've been in the shelter there's theodores in there just mm -hmm. wiggly squishy loving everybody but nobody's fighting over them nobody's taking them home and that's backwards that's it backwards. backwards absolutely and it it those are the animals that get the, the publicity, that get the attention. Um, so the people that you were talking about who may have considered adoption, that's what they see on their Facebook feeds. I mean, I'm, I try to avoid at all costs the cross-posting world because it's so depressing and frustrating. Um, but if I'm a person who's friends with somebody who does this cross-posting and all I see are these red-listed dogs I'm thinking, well, why would I ever want to adopt? Because all they have are animals who somebody wants to euthanize. And well, so you and I with formal backgrounds mm -hmm. and behavior can read through those ads and read the code behind yeah. only dog home, no pets, no kids. No he would prefer to be your one and only. Yeah, he would prefer <laughs> not to be left alone. Yeah. Like there's and and the sad thing is the people who are most likely to foster or adopt these animals are also often the least capable of handling them. Mm. Like I have lived with some supremely dangerous dogs. Like part of my crusade for um, behavioral euthanasia, not being a dirty word anymore, is is because 
I had one of my own mm-hmm. during my save them all phase. And I know how to live with extremely dangerous dogs. And I just told you how adorable my dogs are. I choose not to. I choose to have dogs who are, I have four dogs in the house now. Three are officially mine and one one may become mine. She's Uh-oh. Really Is this Miss Poppy? <laughs> oh. oh, she's so sweet. <laughs> I got um, buy-in from two of my three dogs. I'm still waiting to see if the third one, but my rule for adding new animals to my life is all of the animals who are in my life must say yes to it. So I'm not doing crate and rotate. I'm not, I've done that, been there, done that, not doing it again. And I have three dogs of my own who are walking advertisements for shelter dogs. When I take them out and I have Iris at tractor supply and she snaps into a heel and she does all of her tricks and people are like, that's the best behaved Doberman I've ever seen. I'm like, Tampa Bay Humane, she came from a shelter. And I I love bragging about my shelter animals and just getting people to think about um, whether they want to take them. But I I also run a... um, grief support group for people who have euthanized for behavior. It's called Losing Lulu. It was founded by a Canadian trainer, Sue Alexander, who watched me go through a situation with my foster dog, Lulu, who turned out to be quite dog aggressive and tried to kill one of my own dogs. And um, the group I was with does not adopt out dogs who try to kill other dogs. So I euthanized her and my friends on my social media, they know I've got a master's degree in animal behavior. I've been right. doing this forever. They're like, well, if Trish says this dog's not safe to adopt out, that's fine. But then yeah. I, I'd i been posting her on Theodore's page because we did not know the extent of her dog issues until until we knew. Mm-hmm. And when I posted on her page, on his page, I got a lot of pit bull lovers who were like, well, I live with great and rotate dogs who want to kill each other. Why don't you do that, too? She's not my dog. Yeah. <laughs> She's lost her. And I was living in a 160 square foot tiny house. Like mm-hmm. it was not a crate and rotate kind of living situation. And I didn't want to keep her. And I couldn't ethically adopt her out knowing the kind of damage she could do. Right. So I I started getting hate mail and I'm like, delete, block, delete, block. It, it doesn't bother me. I, I understand. I've, I've been there. I was that person. And Sue said, hey, why don't we, we need a place to talk about this. And she sent me a link that said Losing Lulu. And we now have like 28,000 members, the best moderation team in the world. And it's a very lonely thing to have let one of your animals go. And it's not just dogs. We have had cats and rabbits and alpacas and horses and all kinds of things. A snake. But it's all animals who lost their lives due to behavior. Mm -hmm. And it's so lonely. Like people feel like they can't tell their friends. They're like, oh, she ran away. She had a yeah. seizure. So like, and and that's okay. I think a little white lie is fine. I, I do think it's something you can't understand until you've been through it. But so many of those dogs were saved from the euthanasia list. Some of them are dogs who became quite famous on viral videos on social media through a certain site. Like mm-hmm. some of them are dead now and their videos are still circulating this dog was on the euthanasia list blah 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 look at this hero who stepped up and they don't do a follow-up they're like oh yeah and the dog turned out to be to have been on the euthanasia list for good reason and now the adopters had to go through that and i just think 
that is the most unethical thing we can do is is outsourcing our dirty work to adopters, to rescue groups, to well-meaning people who who want that rush of saving an animal. And I get it. I love oh, yeah. having this little Great Pyrenees mix who is who was dumped at a neighbor's place, who's in no way um, able to handle her. She's lovely. She is a lovely dog, and it gave me a rush to go and scoop her up. And mm -hmm. she's being spayed tomorrow, and she's going to be ready to go. And I've got her vetted like that. That to the rescue and rescuer and me is is a wonderful thing. But she is a lovely dog. Like she is going, even if my last dog says no to her, <laughs> she moves on to another house. Even the cats like her. Like they come yeah. up and rub on her. If she goes on to another house. You know, I, I got my rush of being the rescuer, but she's going to be a 12-year excellent addition to a home. Mm -hmm. And she came from being, you know, a scared little puppy who didn't know how to walk on a leash, who didn't covered in fleas, who had never had a bath, and um, never been in a house for yeah. sure. And now she is a lovely, lovely house dog. And she's learning to be the best. But I'm, it's, and you know, we've been talking about behavior the whole time. Because that is, it, it puts people in danger. Whereas when we're talking about anim and animals and, and, and animals. other animals, absolutely. Um, but when we're talking about other animals who are, people are spending time and money and effort to save, there are also medical cases. And I view those differently because usually it's things we can fix. Like you have your two blind kittens who are perfectly functional, happy, lovely, lovely wonderful additions to a home who had eye issues. Um, and sometimes we're so focused on the the marginal animals that we forget to look at the animals who are maybe different, but completely adoptable. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they are lovely, lovely, happy cats. They were medically expensive. And I did a little fundraiser on Theodore's page and um, a great rescue called Old Dogs Go to Helen stepped up and actually paid for their surgery. So I'm like, everybody go donate to this rescue. <laughs> yeah. And these cats are going to live for 15 more years. They are just little bundles of purrs. You pick them up, all you hear it. And all they've known is pain from these ruptured eyeballs mm -hmm. that have now been removed. They're happy, happy little, little cats. So I would way rather see if, like, if you think about how much it costs to board a behavior dog for mm -hmm. weeks, months, or years, I would really rather see that money go towards helping um, animals that are, are going to have a good quality of life and who are going to add to um, the homes that they end up in. And yeah. anybody in North Carolina want two of the nicest indoor only <laughs> um, blind kittens? I'm hoping I can send them together. They're five months old now. I I can't believe it's taking so long to place them. I don't but, know if we have any of our listeners in North Carolina, but if you are and you can make it to Asheville, go adopt these <laughs> blind kikis because the videos of them, they are spectacular cats and Trish raises them right. So, you know, they're going to yes, be they are excellent. dog friendly, cat friendly. Um, they do kind of want to chase the chickens when they come in the house, but you probably won't have house chickens like I do. Um, <laughs> who among us are lucky enough to have a house has, chicken? Ethel the hen knocking at the door to come in and check for crumbs every morning. But. You know, they're, they're great with humans. They're great with dogs. They're great with cats. They are lovely, lovely, lovely animals. And I, I think if you want to throw a lot of money into things, like the other thing that happens with these behavior dogs is they get sent off to board and train. Mm -hmm. And very often these board and trains will 
use pretty harsh methods to suppress the behavior long enough to get the dog into a home. Mm-hmm. And most adopters do not want to use suppressive methods right. and um, use things that that the dog finds unpleasant. Most owners find that unpleasant. So they take off the tools and the dog goes back to the behavior that they had before. Right. So um, when you look at the thousands and thousands of dollars that are spent on that, like how many sweet blind kikis could you could you right. sometimes i translated in how, into how many parvo shots could you give like if you think yeah. of the most good for the least money there is nothing sexy about a vaccine clinic there's just nothing sexy yeah. about it unless you are the person who lives in a veterinary desert mm-hmm. where you would have to take your dog 10 miles to get the shots and they don't allow dogs on the on the bus so right. you've got to get a friend to drive you or you just don't get vaccines and, you know, living in the South, we have so much parvo, like yep. pennies for a vaccine can save so many lives and it's a terrible way to die. So, yeah, sometimes when I'm like, oh, and they did a fundraiser for $8,000 <laughs> to put it in the dog's leg and like, uh, or amputate the leg and use the $7,500 yeah. to... Do some parvo shots. So do prevention and and help the community at the same time. I think it's so hard for us when we're in it to step back and see the bigger picture of, you know, where it's the failure to see the forest for the trees. You know, we have we're so focused on the reaction, the save this animal, fix this animal that we forget about the prevention that keeps the animals from coming into our care in the first place. Which, yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to see a lot of shelters moving beyond the shelter walls. The last um, conference I spoke at in Australia, that was their theme, was beyond the shelter walls, where people are stepping into the community. And instead of finding somebody for their dog escaping the fence and coming in three times, you spend that money that you would have spent housing the dog in your kennel to fix the fence mm. or, you know, do the vaccines have the pet food pantry help the people who already love these animals keep them in their homes rather than taking a dog who might be marginal anywhere else right and put them in your shelter and keep them for weeks months or years or or euthanize them due to behavior or due to health i i think we really need to look at the human end of the leash and i'm delighted to see more and more shelters looking at you know, inexpensive and non-sexy things like vaccine clinics, mm-hmm. like your helplines, like fence yep. building. I think that is, I think the future of sheltering is going to be beyond the shelter walls. I think we're going to look back at this time where we're incarcerating animals in kennels and like trying to change their behavior mm-hmm. while they're in chain link and cement. And these are animals who want to be with humans the vast majority of them anyways and so hard to make them behaviorally more healthy in that situation yeah which is why fostering is so important too yep and we learned that over the pandemic just getting so many so many of us were shocked that this dog who was finger painting their cat theodore was a finger painter he came his little white paws stained with sorry shelter jargon dogs who (laughs) Yes, run around the kennel so much that they smear their own poop everywhere. Um, and a lot of times that's just frustration. Yeah. That is just lack of stimulation. And he is like a cat. He is the cleanest dog. He will not walk in mud. But 
we didn't know that about him. And I thought, oh, God, I'm going to have a terrible time house training this dog. He's been paddling around in his own poop for eight months while his case worked its way through the courts. But we found out that in a home, many, many, many behaviors become better. So I, I think the combination of foster and helping people and let's get some laws around not discriminating against pet owners. I yeah. think if we could do all of that, you and I would not have as much to do in shelter world. Yeah, that would be a that would be a great outcome. So I want to end with kind of a, a an instructional moment, I guess, for our shelter partners, because so many of the people who listen do work and volunteer in shelters when they are facing and I'm not we're, we're not here to say just euthanize all the behavior cases. That's not what we're, we're talking about here. But when people are faced with when they have in their care a marginal dog. What are some, what, is there like a checklist? Is there a, I know you have a, a quality of life index that you recommend that are these animals suffering? Um, what what can our partners use to help them make decisions about outcomes for these marginal animals? Well, one of the things that I do in my shelter dog behavior mentorship, and this is the week we're doing it for my current mentees, is I think we need written policy. Like there's always going to be some gray area. Mm -hmm. But I think if we have something written down that says this is what we will work with, this is what we will not work with, and it's going to be different for every shelter. It's going to depend on what your um, abilities are for working with behavior, for post-adoption support of your behavior dogs. But having a policy that, that just says, I, I had a shelter contact me about a dog who did what would have been a level four bite but it was through a winter jacket mm. and your jacket got the level four bite. And they're like, well, technically he hasn't drawn blood. And that's our, that's our, um, the threshold. That's yeah. Our, yeah. That's what our policy is, is if the dog does a level four bite to a human, but because it had been through a jacket, I'm like, that is a dog who launched and grabbed a shoulder, like high up on the body and with intent to do damage um, like that, that falls into the gray area. If your cutoff is level three bites on the Dunbar scale, the Dunbar scale bite scale is being revised right now to oh. take into account things like the amount of clothing that the, the tooth went through. It has not been finished yet. But I think sitting down, and this is something that I counsel shelters on, they can book some hours of my time and I have a template that we use and we go through what, what will we send out? What will we not send out? And sometimes I get to be in on a revision, you know, mm. maybe a couple of years later, you bring me back in. And what we'll do is look at the dogs who went out and were returned for behavior and ended up euthanized. Yeah. Those are the ones that we need to try to account for so that we avoid the stage where we traumatize somebody yeah. and the dog ends up dead anyways. Like, let's let's just skip the middleman. <laughs> let's not put people through that. And there is no perfect tool. I have seen some really complex matrices where they take into account all of things. I don't think anybody's got the answer. I think mm -hmm. it needs to be done shelter by shelter. But it needs to be objective because if you are making your behavioral euthanasia calls on a case-by-case -case basis, like if it's a Doberman, I am going to have a hard time with it. Mm -hmm. But if I have sat down and agreed that Dobermans who do level four bites um, governments who hurt children, then my my own biases can't come in. So, um, 
and you can make the decisions a little sooner usually so that you don't have the two years where everybody becomes attached because I've been that person too. Like mm -hmm. the dogs with behavior problems are very often the smartest and the coolest and the most fun to work with. And there's something really sexy of being one of three people who can take this dog out. Um, but if we knew when they came in that they had bitten a child in the abdomen un unprovoked, mm -hmm. The fact that they haven't bitten any children in our shelter where we don't let children interact with them <laughs> and they're great with adults doesn't matter if if that is on our criteria list that we don't send out dogs who have done that not not even to no child homes because mm -hmm. i don't have children but my neighbor has a seven-year-old granddaughter who yep. loves my ponies and it comes walks through my gate past the doberman and past the pit bull and Although I don't have children myself, there are definitely children in contact with my dogs. <laughs> and yeah. she doesn't always knock, like she doesn't always call. <laughs> and I have I have lovely, friendly dogs, so it's not a big deal. Um, but yeah, only dog homes for dogs who are gonna tear up other dogs. That means the person who gets them has to, for the next 12 years, not drop the leash, not forget the muzzle, not have a gardener leave the gate open, not have like, it's really hard to be a hundred percent. And my question is always what happens if the leash gets dropped? Right. So if it's a dog who doesn't like children and if you drop the leash, they're going to leave. Sure. That, that is an only child home mm -hmm. or a no child home. Like my neighbor's seven year old walks in and I have a dog who leaves and goes to the other side of the farm. That's fine. Not my that's deal. Not, yeah. That's not a dangerous dog. So, I don't think you have to say, well, don't keep a dog who's who's not going to be able to live with children. That's mm -hmm. fine. But my question is, yeah, what happens if management fails? Yeah. Or when management fails? Because it almost always does. Right. There's no there's no perfect environment where it, it goes perfectly all the time, unfortunately. It's such an important concept to remember when we're dealing with so many animals that come through our doors and through you know, into our care and decisions have to be made at some point and better to make them before someone gets hurt. Because yeah, we... and if you've got the policy, then you can say, okay, based on the history of this dog, um, the best predictor of future behavior in a home is past behavior in a home. Yeah. And they have torn up three of the neighbor's dogs and killed two of the neighbor's cats. Sometimes what I ask is, do I want this dog living next door to me? Mm. I have dogs, I have cats. If I don't want the dog living next to me and we send them out, they're living next to somebody. Right. Like there are not enough hermits in the woods with no neighbors. <laughs> Most of these dogs will be living yeah. beside somebody. Yeah, in the suburbs. And it's not even just aggression issues. I mean, if this dog was surrendered because it launched itself through a second story window with separation anxiety, how how are you going to feel if it launches itself out the window and gets hit by a car? Or it tears yeah, itself yeah. up. You know, it's also separation anxiety is a huge thing. Well, there's generalized anxiety. There's feral type behaviors. Like when we write down our criteria, often we'll look at what sort of things do we end up euthanizing anyways. And let's let's skip the two years where we try everything and give this animal some peace. Because I don't know if you've ever had a panic attack, but it is the worst feeling in the world. You, you feel like your heart's going to jump out of your chest. You feel like you can't breathe. And when you think about a dog who has anxiety every day, even when the owner goes into the bathroom and shuts the door. Yeah. Um, 
I, I got I have to admit, I have more trouble with the fearful dogs, with the separa- separation anxiety, especially. Those dogs just love too much. Mm-hmm. But I think if you're going to throw a lot of money into something, send them home with help from a separation anxiety trainer. There are lots of certified separation anxiety trainers all over the country. They work by Zoom. Like, send them home with a, a couple months of, of that. And about 75% of them can be fixed mm. or gotten to the point that you can have a job again. Yeah. It is a lot of work. It is often worth it because they're the nicest, nicest dogs. Like, those ones I, I would rather see money put into than the one that has um, hurt other people's pets or hurt humans. Yeah. It's a having the having to make that decision is is tough. And we know that our partners and our friends are dealing with it every day and knowing that there are supportive groups out there like losing Lulu um, or really even just a community of people like minded people who understand that these decisions are not being made in a vacuum, that they need to be made with the animal and the people's well-being in mind. Um, is something important to consider for all of our listeners. Um, I could, honestly, I could sit and chat with you forever and never, but now you have a life. Um, so we'll probably have you back again to talk about something else because it's just too much fun. Uh, but, you know, Trish, and for f- the, no one would know this, but Trish and I met years, and I think maybe almost a decade ago at a an equine rescue um, doing a, a seizure and just hit it off, found out we had the same degree and I have been following and learning from Trish for just that long. And and I'm so appreciative that, number one, you took the time to come on here, but that you use your expertise to help so many people and so many animals. So thank you for spending time with me and also for (laughs) helping all of our listeners make better decisions for the animals and for the people who love them. Yeah, let's talk about something happy next time. Yeah. Adolescents. I've got an adolescent puppy downstairs. She is awesome. Okay, so next time we're going to talk about fun training for good dogs. Perfect. There we go. I love it. Uh, Thank you so much, Trish. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. This has been Conversations for the Animals, and we will see you next time. Bye.